This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is part of a mini-series on the American West. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back three episodes to get more context. Right off the bat, I want you to know that this is not a ploy to increase my revenue stream for this podcast. It's not. I just need to be honest with you for a few minutes. I don't usually like to make this show about myself. I prefer to keep the audience at a bit of a distance, put the focus on history and facts. But after reporting these stories on the American West, housing, and conservation easements over the last few months, things got personal. Now, I've been working on this series on and off since last fall. Truly, this four-part bundle of episodes is about a year in the making. On public radio shows, they generally go looking for someone who embodies a certain issue. I didn't want to do that with these episodes because I thought, well, that might seem a little voyeuristic. Then, on March 3rd, 2021, this story came really close to home. On that day, I got home from my morning bus route to see that something had changed. An object was coming through my bedroom ceiling, where I'm recording this right now. The ceiling looked kind of like the shell of an egg with a young baby chick trying to break free. Cracked and with a protrusion, I couldn't quite place. It turned out to be a wooden 2x4 that a previous roommate had wedged between the roof and the ceiling joists in an attempt to keep the roof from caving in about a decade ago. Seeing the writing on the wall or on the ceiling or whatever, I decided to keep an audio journal as we went through this experience. Okay, so, uh, oh, that's hot still. My brother Nick joined me for the first diary entry. I had to make that tough call of like, do we actually tell the landlord or don't we tell the landlord? Uh, which is that dark calculus that I think that a lot of people in low income have to make. Right, because the problem is if we complain, will they kick us out and find somebody who won't complain? Or right. will we draw so much attention to ourselves that they'll raise the rent or bulldoze the house and build a McMansion? Tomorrow, which is Monday, they might be sending an inspector to look at the house. So how are you feeling about that? Uh, so initially I was terrified and I was convinced that we were going to be kicked out of the house uh, and not have a place to live because the problem is there's no plan B uh, around here. Uh, there's no extra housing. There's no, oh, you could just move in here kind of thing. It's like, oh, we'll just end up on people's floors. We'll have to scrou- um, scrounge around, maybe sleep in the basement of the church. So I was scared because there, there's no plan B. So, But right now I, I feel okay. I feel like God will provide. Uh, they did patch the holes. So that's a sign that they're not planning on bulldozing the whole house, probably. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. But uh, yeah, I'm a little trepidatious about tomorrow. The next day was March 8th, the day I interviewed a real estate agent for the conservation easements episode. That was the day we got the bad news. And I recorded this. The contractor just left uh, the house. It looks like they're going to have to replace the whole roof, which means we're going to have to leave. It's either that or they tear the house down. So either way, I'm about to be homeless um, soon. We don't know when. We don't know what the timeline is. Um, I guess I'm... uh, 
I was just struggling to know what how to react. Um, I work a lot of hours. I have three jobs. Um, and uh, to not be able to face a housing crisis like this is, uh, is really dehumanizing to me. Um, makes me feel like I haven't done enough. I haven't worked hard enough. Um, and if I just worked harder on this podcast or on my movies or the books or something, then um, this wouldn't have been happening. So um, it's a really just a hard time uh, as I'm reporting this story about property taxes um, and the troubles in Teton County. So um, I think it's kind of fitting that this is all happening right at the same time. But uh, to know why it's happening doesn't make it easier. It's all happening at once. So I have steady employment, friends, a church family, and I feel as though God called me to Jackson, Wyoming over a decade ago. My problem is not that my brother and I don't have thousands of dollars. We actually do. Or that we couldn't get a loan for hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've already been pre-approved for one if we should happen to find a house that we can afford. Our problem is that we don't have millions of dollars. The median home price in Jackson is $2.2 million and climbing. I don't care how much I drive a school bus or how much fundraising I do on this show, I'm not going to be able to buy a house here on the open market. There are very few apartment complexes, few rentals. Losing your housing in Jackson is not something you just fix by going to apartments.com. It means stopping strangers in the grocery store to ask if they have a rental. And I did. In all, it took seven weeks for my brother and I to find a new place to live while my friends daily forwarded listings and added my story to their work listservs and church prayer lists. One place I called told me I was the 68th person to inquire about their listing. 68th. Now contrast that with this statistic. A few years ago, it was estimated that 40% of all the homes in Teton County, where I live, are empty all but two weeks of the year. I was headed for homelessness while whole neighborhoods sat empty. You and I have been looking at the myth of the American West, how it got tied to Christianity, how cowboys had a very different life than we imagine, and what we can learn about income inequality from the wealthiest county in the nation. Today, we're going to process the morality of all that, how gentrification is shaping our country, We'll try to understand how cowboy myths about independence impact our ability to love our neighbors, those who pretend to live next door, and those who are sleeping in a van across the street. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. I've got a special guest to help me with this difficult subject today. Yeah, my name is Justin Farrell. I'm a sociology professor at Yale in our School of the Environment. My most recent book is Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West. I like this book a lot, though it is a hot-button topic in town. Some people love it, others see it as an attack. 
I've even heard the word socialism in connection to it, though it is not a socialist book. Instead, it's a scientific study of the habits and personalities of the ultra-wealthy. What I was looking at was, you know, how these folks use wealth to solve the different problems that they face, and I break them down into two types of problems. So you have these economic problems, and they're, they're not problems like, um, you know, many people face in terms of keeping food on the table, but they're, they're economic problems in the sense of, you know, how do they use their wealth? How do they um, share their wealth? How do they kind of leverage it to be happy? How do they make more wealth with the wealth that they already have? So that economic side. But then there's this other social side, which is it's connected to the economic, of course. But it's how do you wrestle with and respond to some of these social stigmas? This, this moral anxiety that you can have about being ultra rich. And they're both, you know, praised in our society, in our culture, um, you know, but they're also critiqued. And, and especially these days with growing wealth inequality, they've become targets. As income disparity grows in the United States, public perception of wealthy people changes. So there is concern about stigma. I've heard it from wealthy people myself. One of the ways they combat this is by taking on the myth of the cowboy, a rugged individual who is close to the land, a tough character who wears jeans and a cowboy hat, someone who doesn't need the government. Friends and I used to go Western swing dancing at the stagecoach and cowboy bars here in town. On several occasions, I heard people say how remarkable it was that wealthy people here mix with ski bums and bus drivers in the same hangouts. Nobody could tell who was who because we were all wearing jeans and button-up shirts. The dress code here is something Justin focused on in his research, because it's a little strange when you stop to think about it. Some of the wealthiest people in the world dressed like poor farmhands. And so it can create these anxieties that they have about of being ultra-wealthy, especially when you move into an area like Wyoming that is has you know historically been pretty down to earth, um, connected to the land, um, and this cowboy myth that you have that you just mentioned, they look at the people who are are maybe of lower income in Teton County in Jackson Hole, uh, and they kind of associate them with this myth that you know these people are you know despite their low status careers. Um, or that, you know, what they perceive as these low status careers, this, the lack of material comfort that these wealthy people have themselves, you know, they're kind of, you know, free from all the problems that people with money face, or that people with a lot of money face, people with a lot of power face, these moral trappings that, you know, you get yourself into when you, you are really wealthy and, or you, you do, um, you know, run a company where, you make all sorts of decisions and that, that can impact people um, and you can become, you know, uh, wrapped up in that kind of career. But, you know, on the other hand, look at these people who are just kind of living this noble life of contentment that they're kind of out here on this frontier, living this authentic life. It's, that's simple. You know, they're living in this small town that has, has like boardwalks. It has like a cute town square with antlers that frame it. You know, and and it's all kind of built on top of what uh, are half truths about the town and about the 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 culture of the state, really. Um, and so 
they, again, they harness that and then they kind of, there's all sorts of ways they, they perform that and that they adopt it into their lives, um, which may seem, you know, like they're just kind of dressing up and playing uh, some sort of character or it's like Halloween or something like that, but it does have deep consequences for the community. The story of the West, as we've discovered over this miniseries, is one of haves and have-nots. And wealthy people here do feel under attack in spheres of their lives. All this talk on the news of socialism, class, and race tensions. One way to circumnavigate that stigma is to wear the clothes of the working class. There's a reverence of people who live in vans on the side of the road for their Marie Kondo minimalist lives. Sure, I've got this mansion to live in, but it's so big and requires maintenance. Wouldn't it be great to just go wherever you want to? Justin chronicled conversations with wealthy people who feel a kinship with ski bums because they can share a beer next to them at the bar. One example in the book comes from the Yellowstone Club near Big Sky, Montana, a very exclusive private community with its members-only ski resort. One man he interviewed said that he had real working-class friends in town, like the guy who sells him fish in the local market who always helps him get the best cuts. He sees the fishmonger as his friend. As Justin points out, the salesperson at the market is just that, a salesperson. But many of the wealthy people he interviewed saw these interactions with working-class people as authentic friendships. Even though they were paying something for these interactions, they mistook customer service for genuine friendship. This was, yeah, fascinating to me. And it was something that I, I didn't expect at all. And I, as I'm doing the research over you know, many years, it's, it just keeps coming up. Uh, when I talk with people and the same kind of thing with how people dress and this is all related. And I just sort of wrote it off. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm studying extreme income inequality. I'm studying how that impacts conservation, the environment. Why are people talking so much about um, their friends and that their friends are these normal people? You know, for example, there's a story in the book about a guy named John who made tens of millions as an oil and gas CEO. But since coming to Wyoming, he's, he's so passionate about becoming this normal person, which again ties into some of the myths that we just talked about. And he wears Wranglers and cowboy boots. And, but he does kind of go on and on about all of his normal working class friends. And that's just, just one example of, of many in the book and many that didn't even make it in the book. You know? And so you know, he would say, you know, I, don't, I don't tell people I live in, where I live in, in Jackson because they accept me as a local and, you know, I've got all this money. I've got um, my own airplane, um, but, you know, I'm just a normal guy. I drink beer with the, with the ski bombs. I, I'm just as much as a lifty as they are. And, and so it was this attempt to can, again, reduce the distance between these folks, the economic, the social distance there that exists and, and in some ways pretend that it doesn't exist um, for various reasons, uh, relative to, you know, again, the interests of, of the wealthy and, you know, wanting to fit in, but also wanting to kind of pretend that this is some sort of like old fashioned community where every, everybody gets along. Um, so over and over, it was like, you know, we have normal friends, we're friends with ski bums, but we're also friends with, you know, some celebrity who lives there or some CEO or politician, you know, that, those names we would probably all know for people who are there. 
Um, and so it was almost this obsession with, with normal people and being quote unquote friends with them. But as I kind of, show, oh, you know, it's often tied to some sort of economic exchange with this person. They're your caretaker for your children or, or they're the bartender or, or something like that. Um, and again, with, without recognizing that in reality, your, you know, quote, normal working class friend who, again, you likely met because they served as your fishing guide or they rendered services for your home. They're not this white ski bum living the dream. They're more likely, you know, an immigrant from Mexico who's, you know, living crammed into a, a rundown hotel room or they're, you know, traversing Teton Pass uh, twice a day to get to work, you know, missing time with their kids and all of these things. And so that's the reality of a life of, of, of your quote unquote friends. The romanticized version of low-income people glosses over the reality that some people live in vans because they can't afford or even find housing when the median home price is $2.2 million. Most jobs in Teton County are low-wage, and those wages have not kept up. In 1970, the typical wage here was $39,000 per year. In 2015, it was just over $41,000, meaning that despite 45 years of inflation, the typical wage only went up $1,109. And let me tell you, there are plenty of us who don't even earn that. So when wealthy people hold up the working poor for their simplicity, it overlooks the very real stress of housing and food insecurity. Yeah, so the fact that this is all based on, you know, a romanticized idea of rural people and poverty, you know, again, where these low-income people are imagined to, to be in kinship with nature and, again, free from the snares of wealth and power. So poverty does become associated with the ski bomb or or a hardworking rancher who doesn't need much just kind of enjoys the work uh, almost like in a capital w sense like work um this physical toil with the land you know those are those are like cute ski bombs they're here enjoying life rather than the reality of of poverty in across the rocky mountain west and in teton county the reality is actually an immigrant family you know working two or three jobs sometimes just to stay afloat because of the impact that many of these folks have on the community. Their, their perception of poverty is, is misguided and, and, and inaccurate. And the poverty here is very real, especially in the Latino community. In 2015, across the whole population, one in four kids in our school district were on meal assistance programs. That's significant. One solution to the housing problem that I often hear is that poor people should just move to Victor, Idaho or Star Valley, Wyoming, where housing is cheaper. Both are a 45-minute to an hour drive in good weather. I mean, that's a typical commute in Houston. So what is the problem in Wyoming? But, you know, maybe in Houston, you would have a 30-minute drive. I think a lot of people have that. But the difference is you're not going over a, a mountain pass and you're not doing it in an area that has, you know, avalanche risks and they have, you know, um, the grades of the road are very steep and winding and uh, it's just dangerous. 
And so, you know, it's a little different. So why do ultra wealthy people want to live in the middle of nowhere in this little town in Wyoming? Um, the first and, and most obvious is that it, Wyoming does not have a state income tax. That's really attractive of a, a lot of people. And it's, it's one reason why Teton County has become you know, the richest county in the entire country, richer than even Manhattan or pockets around Silicon Valley. And so, um, you know, not paying state income tax can save you a lot of money, especially, especially if you make a lot of money. It's estimated that 40% of the homes here in Teton County are vacant, all but a few weeks of the year. Vacant. That's kind of crazy considering so many low-wage people can't find a place to live. We don't have a housing problem in Teton County. We have an occupancy problem. And it's not because these are simply vacation homes. It's because of a tax loophole. A magic trick only available to the ultra-wealthy. Let's say you're a millionaire living in Connecticut. You make $10 million annually. Now, if you move your primary residence to Wyoming, whether you actually live here or not, you can save $700,000 per year on your state income taxes. $700,000 per year. Now, for some ultra-wealthy people, they can actually save money by building a mansion and leaving it empty. The downside of this, of course, is that Connecticut, the state where they actually live, is not getting that money. Wherever you are today, this story impacts you. Are your public schools underfunded? Is your state infrastructure in need of repair? That may be because ultra-wealthy people are pretending to live in a tax-free state like Wyoming, Florida, or Arizona, while using resources, driving on roads, relying on law enforcement services in places like New York, California, Connecticut, and Missouri that they don't pay for. President Trump himself is under investigation for moving his residence to Florida, even though he clearly lived in New York and DC while he was president. One of the reasons Teton County is so busy is that it's being used as a tax shelter. Granted, even states with income taxes are seeing huge growth in small mountain towns. Taxes aren't the only reason for the explosion of formerly rural areas, but they do play a role. Wyoming is also home to easy tax shelters through things like LLCs. The important thing I would add, though, is they're not doing anything that's illegal. You know, that it, it's, that's the situation in Wyoming, and it's, it's a choice the state continues to make. The, the wealthy are often recruited by some local you know, companies, and I have different quotes in the book about that, about how they advertise this, and, and they're actively attracting people to come. It's really quite easy to do and, and, and on the up and up in some ways, unless you're skirting the, the residency requirements, which I, I imagine many of the people I talked with um, are. And, you know, it was interesting conversations would kind of um, <laughs> change direction or they weren't quite as talkative when I would ask them how much time they spend in Teton County. I myself know people who pretend to live here to get out of taxes while their opulent empty homes gain value. One woman I know buys plane tickets but never gets on the flights so she can show the Missouri tax auditors that she traveled here, even if she didn't. That We would call that fraud, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Which raises a lot of questions in my mind for those of us who claim to be Christians. 
Some of these folks attend my church and other churches when they are in town. Jesus told us to give Caesar what is Caesar's, and they're not doing that. But since very few churches see this behavior as sinning, who is going to say anything? The common refrain in Jackson is that while many wealthy people are dodging taxes where they actually live, they're also giving money to the Jackson community through nonprofits, where they get even more of a tax write-off. Justin, again, did not want to demonize the ultra-wealthy. I'm doing most of the strong-arming here, trying to give you some perspective. He sees the value in understanding the viewpoint of the ultra-wealthy. I, in the book, spend so much time from the perspective of the wealthy and how much they love this place and how much they love the people and how much... But it, it, it's all this kind of veneer that's created that often tends to just benefit their experience of nature or benefit them financially. And it's not like they're monsters out to get everybody um, or anything like that. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. And I don't really pin blame on one person or another. But at the end of the book, when I'm kind of giving more of my own opinion, so to speak, do pin blame on the policies that are in place that are allow these sorts of things to worsen at the expense of many people like yourself. The truth is that the wealthy do give a lot of money to the community here. Not so much through things like taxes, which are distributed to stuff like roads and fire departments, but more through the arts and conservation. When I've spoken with wealthy people here, they defend this inequality. Why should they pay for government services when they can direct their money to cultural programs that might get overlooked, like bringing in famous opera singers and art exhibits? Taxes get distributed to all kinds of social services, but many ultra-wealthy people I've spoken with see their influence as smart and successful people helping to guide society, using their money for social and political clout instead of, you know, paving potholes. Here in Jackson, they disproportionately give money to services that benefit them. Which may sound crazy. How do you give money to benefit yourself? Well, let me demonstrate. In 2018, the Jackson Hole Land Trust, the organization that helps wealthy people set up conservation easements here, received over $14 million in gifts, grants, etc., its president made $171,000 in compensation. As we discussed in the last episode, conservation easements give rich people massive tax write-offs not available to working people. They can literally get government funding for their backyards, raising their property values, but not their taxes. The Jackson Hole Land Trust helps them do that. In return, they received $14 million. Contrast that with the Good Samaritan Mission, a place where people go to find food and shelter here in town. In 2019, they received just $338,706, or about 2.5% of what the land trust raised. The Jackson Hole Food Cupboard, which is the local food bank, raised just over $159,000 in 2019, or just about 1% of the land trust's total haul. For perspective, that is $10,000 less than the president of the land trust is paid each year. That's right, it costs less to run the food bank than it does to pay just the president of the land trust. Also supported are arts organizations like the Center for the Arts. In 2019, it raised over $1.5 million. 
the Grand Teton Music Festival, a classical music nonprofit that brings orchestras to town, earned over $2 million that same year. People are gener- were generous, um, and but if you look at where that's going, it's going to, again, experiences that serve the elite. And so, you know, that often would intersect with the arts. And so it was really interesting to me, too, the way that it, it intersected with environmental issues. And so you have a few environmental and arts organizations who are receiving most of the money. And ones that I would argue don't need it. If you're looking to solve certain problems in the community, which everyone kind of agrees, like, let's let's make this a better community. Um, but if again, if that were true, money would be going different places, in my view. It's not just about the financial benefits. It's also about the social ones, like having an elite place to hobnob or partaking in upper-class luxuries like exclusive chamber music orchestra performances. You can see this not just in the fact that these events exist, but also in how much is spent on planning fundraisers compared to the relative amount raised at fundraisers. Justin cataloged one such fundraising event at the Yellowstone Club that raised $493,800 and incurred $255,900 in expenses. Over half the money raised at fundraisers was spent on hosting the fundraisers themselves. That's true of environmental work in Teton County. It's true of arts, you know, philanthropy in New York City. So this is is nothing new, at least in the literature and what we know about philanthropy. For me, what was interesting was the way that these activities create what I call an environmental veneer. And it's this, this popular assumption that environmental conservation and that type of work is assumed to be, in this kind of vague sense, this altruistic public good. Many of these groups are focused on local issues, which makes sense. Um, But we also need to look at, you know, if you're an oil and gas CEO and you're doing work for an environmental organization, what about the issue of climate change? What about these larger issues that would require you to make sacrifices um, that you probably don't want to make or that would require us to restructure um, global economic systems, global um, natural resource consumption that would require you to think about, you know, do I need to be heating my 10,000 square foot house all year round? There is a built-in hypocrisy. Some of our ultra-wealthy people in Jackson got their money through mineral extraction or oil and gas. Here they are fighting to preserve small pieces of Wyoming while also polluting the air and water elsewhere. And since an estimated 40% of the homes in Teton County are unoccupied, that means that the heat is running in many of these mansions while nobody is there. Trees were chopped down, rocks were pulled up from the ground and shipped, metal roofs forged, granite countertops cut. And why? To build vacant houses. I tend to believe that all humans are hypocrites. If you open your mouth, you're a hypocrite. (laughs) Um, But uh, you do have that weird thing where it's like, I I love the earth and I want to conserve this area, but I'm going to put a house down that's the size of an airport. um, And I'm going to own a a jet just for my family. Yeah, but but I'm also going to recycle... You know, and that and and that's going to make me feel good, even though I, I'm recycling, but I flew in on a private jet and not, and really not be able to see that. And again, I do not really focus on particular people and say like that's a bad person. And like it, it's more about 
societal kind of norms and cultural norms around a lot of these things that and the ways in which those reinforce those the, the environmental problems in the first place and that's what's the i think the important um, point that i'm trying to make is is not it's not pointing fingers like oh you know she just flew in from connecticut on her private jet and thinks she's so good because she's recycling i mean that might be true in a narrow sense uh, but that's an indicator of something much larger for me and in, in addition to not even being able to see the social problems in the community relative to poverty and these these ideas that will kind of spoil your view of paradise and become this buzzkill because you just want to get away that's like why you left connecticut is to get away and, and just kind of like live this this dream um and so just kind of pointing out some of those discrepancies in the way that the environment is used to make it all okay and conservation is used to make it all okay or having a normal friend is used to make it all okay we'll be right back god is a genius storyteller and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture in christianity today's new show Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. In his book, Justin Farrell writes about something called talking scripts. It's essentially stories that we tell ourselves in order to make sense of the world around us. In his studies, he found that the ultra-wealthy and the working poor, weirdly, had similar talking scripts. We have these scripts in in American culture about hard work and about um, being rewarded for the type of, for, for how hard you do work. And so this was really interesting and really even difficult, you know, when I, we did interviews with low income folks and, um, they're using many of the same scripts that the ultra wealthy use about, you know, well, I have this much money in terms of the ultra wealthy. They say, you know, I have this much money because I've worked hard. I've, you know, I really, um, sacrificed a lot to, to get where I'm at. And that might be true, you know, working long hours in finance or, or building a company and, and, you know, missing your kid's baseball game or, or, being on the road and traveling to London all the time or whatever it is. Um, but they do believe that they've, they've earned that wealth. And so, um, the same was, uh, I would say the same, it was a little different, but the thread there was, is very similar in sense of some of the low income folks were like, you know, I'm, I just need to work harder. I need to get another job and like, I'm going to make it and not recognizing that, well, actually they're working longer hours than the ultra wealthy people are, you know, they, and they don't have any time to even think about, um, you know, the issues that I'm writing about relative to inequality, they just kind of have their head down. And I think that's changing, but, um, 
it was really striking. If you work hard enough, you're going to get ahead. But in a town where the wages are about the same as they were 50 years ago, while the cost of housing has skyrocketed, how can a person work hard enough to earn a living while landscaping, swinging a hammer, cleaning hotel rooms, or driving a school bus? There just aren't enough hours in the day to work more. Which brings us to a discussion of morality. What follows is not Justin's opinion or message, but mine. It turns out there are many different opinions about the morality of wealth, even among Christians. I have been saved for 28 years, yet I have never heard a sermon that was critical of wealth, despite the fact that there are many Bible verses that are. Take the story of the rich young ruler. This story is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and is recounted very similarly in all three. An actor friend of mine is going to read this for you from Mark 10, 17 to 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Let's pause there for a moment to recap. Here's this guy who owns a lot of property, and he's kept the Old Testament law. Now, Jesus feels love for this guy, but what does he say to him? Sell everything and give it to the poor. And he doesn't leave it there. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This camel-through-the-needle's-eye thing is in all three different accounts of the story. And if you ever want to see some fancy footwork, look up sermons about this passage. Even the most literal denominations tiptoe around these verses. I was once at a snowmobile retreat where the guy leading the talk played a clip from a Mark Batterson series called Play the Man, talking about this story. I was unable to secure the rights to play the clips in this episode, but what Batterson does is interrupt the story as soon as the man asks Jesus what to do. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's where Batterson stops. He doesn't talk about the way Jesus answers that question. He just reads up to the question. Then he preaches that the rich young ruler is an example of how we all seek adventure in our lives. Now, I have no idea how he got there, but that is the application Batterson shoehorned into the passage. We do this all the time when preaching the Bible. We stop before Jesus has a chance to elaborate because our interpretation is much easier to stomach than Jesus's. His point is far more unsettling. The man's wealth is clearly a hindrance. But as with so much of the Bible, it's maybe not as specific as we might like. How much money is too much? Is it possible to have a lot of wealth as long as your heart is in the right place? 
we don't have a definitive answer. Living in Jackson has taught me one thing for sure. Wealth is not benign. We have this idea in our society that my wealth is mine. It doesn't impact other people. I'm a cowboy who works hard all day earning my wage. How I decide to save or spend that money is up to me. That idea is distinctly Western. The Bible, on the other hand, is an Eastern book written for Eastern people. In their book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, E. Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien argue that Westerners and Easterners view money in different ways. In our Western mind, money is infinite. There is an unlimited amount, so if I earn a bunch of it, there is still plenty to go around. Whereas in an Eastern culture like the one in the Bible, money is finite. There is only so much. The rich young ruler had a lot of property, which meant there was now less for everyone else. His actions, whether or not this was his intention, impacted others. In an Eastern understanding, wealth is not benign. You can see that clearly in the land trouble in Wyoming that I've been talking about for the last few episodes. When small farmers fenced off parts of central Wyoming, it impacted cattle barons accustomed to free grazing land. When those same small farmers impeded on the fortunes of the barons, the barons fought back. In Jackson, Wyoming, when ultra-wealthy people encountered a restricted supply of land, they further restricted it with conservation easements while pushing out the middle class and working poor. We really do try to dilute that reality, don't we? I mean, Abraham was rich, and so were David and Solomon. God promises all kinds of abundance to his people Israel. Sure. But Jesus was poor. He tells us that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Proverbs 10.22 says that wealth is from God. Yet in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. While not every one of the ultra-wealthy people we've discussed are doing illegal things, the morality of their actions is in question. So, what are we to take away from this series? More ambiguity? A hatred of rich people? A lust after money? Many conversations about wealth end by pointing the finger at the middle class and the working poor and saying, well, the poor in the U.S. are richer than many people in third world countries. Shouldn't they examine themselves before blaming the rich for their problems? I don't want to do that. Let's not take our eyes off the effect that the ultra-wealthy have. As we wrap this up, I want to point out one more thing Justin discovered in his research, and that I've read now in other resources as well. One of the major factors that separate the rich from the poor is friction. Poor people have to stand in line at the grocery store, commute from far away, haggle with creditors on the phone, look for lower prices before buying things. Wealthy people do not have this kind of friction. They have staff to buy things for them, to stock their kitchens. They can skip traffic by paying tolls to use HOV lanes, take private airplanes to avoid connections, and travel to the airport via helicopters. Disney theme parks offer special tours that allow them to skip lines. They can hire private healthcare consultants who direct them to better care or even help them jump the line when it comes to cancer treatments. Did you know that major corporations keep track of the value a customer can provide them? 
so poor people can actually wait longer on hold with them if they need customer service. All of that is true. Wealthy people have less friction in their lives. What sociologists have discovered is that a decrease in friction leads to a loss of empathy and compassion. Why would you vote to fix roads if you can use special toll lanes? Why would you care about affordable housing if your house is making money as it sits empty? Why would you help your neighbor replace his roof when you can just hire a contractor to fix yours while you're on vacation? Poor and working class people have to rely on each other. If you help when my car breaks down, maybe I can pet sit for you while you're out of town. We know our neighbors because we have a symbiotic relationship. Whereas a rich person can simply pay to have their problems disappear, we need each other to solve problems. At minimum, the danger of wealth is that it saps our empathy. It allows us to believe that if working hard is how you get wealth, then poor people must be lazy, which is not always the case. It allows rich people to make laws that benefit them without regard to the less fortunate. While I can't definitively say that wealthy people are sinning if they make over a certain amount, I can say that it is to our detriment if we ignore the story of the rich young ruler. Clearly, something is up. There is a danger in wealth. If nothing else, because it stops the church from being compassionate and from doing its work. The Bible tells us that true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. Now, how does my little church do that when the median home price in Jackson is $2.2 million? We can't afford to put even one family into a home. Rents for a one-bedroom apartment here are over $2,000 a month. My church can't provide for widows and orphans with that kind of cost. Can you imagine paying $24,000 a year just to house one family? What kind of church has that money just laying around? We are in danger as the church if we lose our empathy. If we hold onto the myth there were all cowboys, rogue independent people who don't need each other, and earned everything we have by ourselves. That, as I've demonstrated, is just not true. If we believe that the guy who sells us our fish is our friend, but really he's just being paid to be nice to us, we're missing out on critical human interaction. If we romanticize the quote-unquote simple lives of working people, perhaps we won't feel the need to provide them with healthcare, a living wage, or even the ability to build homes at affordable standards. This is not about hating the wealthy. It's about heeding a warning. When we hear Jesus say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, my fear is that we want to know exactly how big that needle is. How high? How wide? Like, can we just squeak by? Can we make our camels just small enough to pass through with a good push? When instead, we should see that empathy is more than just sporting the style clothes that our neighbors wear. It's about walking a mile in their shoes. Special thanks to my guest, Justin Farrell. His book is Billionaire Wilderness. I'm also in debt to my brother, Nick Steren, for his help as my sounding board. As usual, I have a bunch of discussion questions in your show notes and on the website if you'd like to discuss this series in your small group or around the dinner table. If you'd like more content like this, stuff that nobody else is covering, 
consider giving a little each month to help me tell these stories. As I said many times in this episode, I have a full-time job as a school bus driver and working this hard on multiple jobs is getting really stressful. I'd eventually love to hire other producers and travel more to take you on location for more immersive stories. Visit trucepodcast.com donate for more information. While you're there, you can also listen to my archive of over 100 other stories, find links to my sources, and learn more about my films, Bringing Out Bobby and Between the Walls, as well as my novel, Cradle Robber. Find the show on social media and leave a comment on your podcasting app. It helps people find the show. And please remember to tell your friends and family. I had vocal help on this episode from Nathan Pierce of the Cultural Christianity Podcast and Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rut Podcast. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits Podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.